Welcome to the Tri-Tech Games Podcast. This is Bruce. This is John. This is Blix. This is Trav. This is Paul. This is Jay. Hello and welcome to the TriTac Podcast, your podcast for chopping your limbs off and putting them on with metal ones because flesh is weak. This week we're talking about cyberpunk and joining us is a special guest, Mr. Jay Libby. How's it going, guys? Jay, you've done a little bit of work in the cyberpunk genre. Why don't you you tell our audience uh, a little bit about some of the stuff you've done and 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 one of the guys who may have done a little bit of cyberpunk work that you've you've worked with. Our boss. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I'm Jay Libby. I I've worked for Artelsorian Games. I started as an artist for their Cyberpunk V3 line. I did some writing with them. Worked for Mike Pondsmith, obviously, who's since working for Artel has been been more of a friend than a than an employer. Of course, I worked with Blix on Cyberpunk as well, doing some artwork. A few years ago, when Mike was gone from the scene, I sat down and worked on a prequel for a sci-fi game I had written. And it was a Cyberpunk game. It was written in my, my timeline, but I didn't want to touch it because Cyberpunk is Mike's baby. I thought Mike was gone, and I started researching, spent a year doing all the academic research on this, on this Cyberpunk genre to see what is cyberpunk because I never played it before other than a demo that Mike ran at at icon in long Island. As I get ready to put the thing in a layout and I have the text all burned out and everything, Mike calls me. He's like, Jay, um, guess what? I'm back. And I was like, Oh, what am I going to do with all this work? I am very lucky. I am very lucky to have a friend like Mike because he talked with me about it and we managed to work out some things. And I tossed some things in there to pull it away from what his version of cyberpunk is to make it, something a little bit different and something that's not treading into the, into the sandbox of, of Mike. So, so it's, it's cyberpunk. It's just not our Talsorian cyberpunk. It's, it's your own, your own take on it. Well, there's two different types of cyberpunk. There's like there's fantastic cyberpunk, which is what you see in a lot of the cyberpunk games that are out there. And then there is what I like to call like hard science, historical cyberpunk, which is what could be, a few years down the line or what isn't like completely fantastic. And of course, you know, you always add your twists onto it. And, but uh, I try to keep it much more realistic than I, I did the, on the fantastic end. And I basically took like a bunch of scientific research on, you know, innovation and did some projections about how far along we'd be by the 2075. And of course now the cyberpunk 2075 video game is going to be coming out. So it's just been like running into a brick wall over and over with it. But every time I hit the wall, Mike, Pulls me over the other side. Says, nope, nope, keep going. So, what is this? What is this product called? Because I know you just released it. Chronicle Double Zero Book One. I know, so original. We put out the PDF, and as soon as we sell fifty copies of the PDF, we're gonna put it in print, full color. There's a uh, GM resource deck with all the generic NPCs, so you don't have to dig through the book. You can just pull the cards. Games Crafter did a really great job putting that together for us. The, probably the, one of the greatest resources for indie designers. 
and I have a GM screen that I just actually need to go fix a couple tables on it, and that will be available as well. So, so Jay, you know a little bit about Cyberpunk? Probably more than my underwear does. <laughs> so let's. <laughs> and I want to. I'm going to go around the table, basically, as it were, with the guys. You know what, what you guys see as Cyberpunk, and and I'll, I'll start off, and then and then we, we, we'll go around that way. Uh, well, there's more than two flavors of cyberpunk, but I think Jay hit on the two basic flavors of it is you either have a fantastical version or you have a more hard hard science-y version. And, of course, there's gray area in between. Any of those other versions, you can have like a mystical edge to it. You can always do that. And I think we're going to definitely cover that as well in here. Uh, you could have a horrific kind of cyberpunk, but I think what's most important, as far as I'm concerned, what the key elements to cyberpunk are is A – there has to be an advanced level of technology. There has to be a cyber to it. And I think where the punk comes in is sort of the dystopian type future, you know, where it's not a pretty clean future. It's not like a Star Trek future, as it were. You know, it, it's, it's kind of dirty and gritty and it's not the nicest place to live. And you've always got to watch your back at any time. Anyone could turn on you. It's an uncertain future and, and one with... Some hope in it, but not a whole lot. At least that—that's how I feel about cyberpunk. Let's. Yeah, who, who wants to go next? I'm talking about ex- examples of the genre that I tend to go to. If I, I mean, I don't have to mention, of course, the grand day of them all, Neuromancer. He has the feel, the look and feel of a cyberpunk, but the fantastical version of the of the technology. Uh, Gibson. Well, he didn't have a computer. He wrote it on a typewriter. And he had no idea how computers actually properly worked. So he, his master's technology is a bit more fa- fantasy than it is hard science fiction. But then I find other things I, I, I liked out there. Um, there's a Snow Crash, which hacking is actually done silly rather than through computers. And But the entire ethos of the world is very much uh, cyberpunk in his, his layout. Well, uh, hey, John... We'll get into examples like sure. of writing works and but, stuff, but like oh, just, but, the, but, just the core elements. Like what's our boundaries? Hopelessness is one of the things you see in cyberpunk. You know, you're not top of the pile. You're not at the middle of the pile. You're at the bottom of the pile. And we all know what happens when it rolls down the pile. So, yeah, your best bet as a character in a cyberpunk world is to just either not get noticed or take more of them out before they get you sometimes. And it's not a great place to live. It's a lot of despair. I mean, a lot of the ethos from that time period came from, it was basically came from the 80s and 90s, really. And a lot of folks just looking for a dystopia. It is a dystopian uh, point of view, you know. At the one percent, you're everything else, <laughs> right? So, Bruce, uh, what do you think? All right. To me, cyberpunk has always been a world in which corporations chasing the almighty dollar and without any real oversight rule the world, and everybody is under their thumb or they're working for them. As a result, things like laws, things like ethics. Things like mercy are hard to find and really are there only because you bring it to the table. Your character does. Uh, you, you find it in the street people. You find it occasionally, but you don't find it as part of the culture anymore. Uh, as John said, there's an air of desperation, but at the same time, there's an air of innovation. There's, a, there's an air of great power to be had if you can just grasp it. I like the more fantasy, high technology uh, with the cyberspace 
uh, world where people can jack in, where people are hooked into various electronic devices. I don't really like the limb replacement where you actually are better than you were before. I like more where there's limb replacement because it gives you something you didn't have before, like some kind of connection or some kind of device, or you've got stuff embedded in you. I like the weapons to be outlandish and exotic. Um, I like blasters and laser pistols in my cyberpunk. Uh, wow, okay. <laughs> but at the same time, there's definitely a good place for uh, gyrojet pistols and even the old PPK. One of the, as far as the technology is concerned, one of the books I read, they had a girl in it who was on a skateboard, except the skateboard didn't have wheels. It had these hubs with extendable prongs that would literally push it out and find the ground. And so no matter what landscape she went over, no matter how hard the surface, she would go across it like it was glass. Uh, And that kind of, you know, high edge technology, uh, adaptive technology is the kind of stuff that I love to see in cyberspace. But of course, there's always a price for that kind of technology. Right. So Bruce, you're, you're leaning more in the ultraviolet direction of, of cyberpunk. Are we talking about the movie? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Everything but the folded space. That was a little bit too far for me. Okay. But everything else worked fine. Yeah. Yeah. You know, drive it on the side of buildings. Yeah, sure. I'll buy that. Sure. Why not? All right. So Paul, what do you think? Are we hitting it just about right for you? I think there's a couple other elements to that. It's heavily urban. It's heavily industrialized. It's also heavily multicultural. Remember, like, oh yeah, in all in William Gibson's novels, uh, Blade Runner. Uh, there's a couple other futures where it seems like national borders have collapsed, and that whole communities are in that are Chinese, Japanese, Russian, and at the street level, the English. Where language has devolved into a polyglot using the best of or most most descriptive words of all. And then it, somebody will be using their language and a highly technical term that can't be explained or isn't useful in Mandarin comes out. They're using their sing-song tonal quality language Mandarin. Then, then you hear USB port. And then you go right back in the language. So wait a minute. You're telling me no more America? <laughs> there is just not the one your granddaddy would recognize there's america there's no murka it is multicultural to an extreme it's all blended together but everybody is still their distinct chinese businessman russian mobster american corporate conglomerate guy and they all speak theirs but when they get together around a table everybody's languages are blended together and, and other elements to it these have relied heavily that dark dystopian, dark existentialism. We are who we are because of where we are. What is the meaning of our existence? Are we here for for a greater, or are we just here because this is the point in time we were born? In the like William Gibson's novels, their nihilism played along, where it doesn't matter what you do; it's all entropy in the end. It's every system will collapse. Everyone will die. The people that just drive 100 miles an hour through the city, ignoring red lights and green lights, they just plow through. They're going. And at some point they're going to die. And that could be today and it could be in the next five minutes. It doesn't really matter. Government in this is usually either super fascist or super socialist, but it's, it's all encompassing. Your government's everywhere. There's police cars everywhere. Your barcode's getting scanned. Your retinal pattern is being used. You're moving through checkpoints all the time. That there's always an omnipresent feeling of government all around you. 
not always government. Sometimes it's the corporations around you. Well, sometimes the corporation and the government are the same people. Well, hold on. We'll, we'll get into that. We're gonna, there, I have a whole section I want to talk about off that. So let's let's hold off on that. We'll dive into that a little deeper in, a, in just a little bit. There's a perfect example from Blade Runner, the C- city speak. And it was actually created by James Olmos. He actually created the language. <laughs> he pulled it up from, uh, he basically used Japanese, Spanish, German, Hungarian, Chinese, and French. Oh, cool. For his lingo. So it's just a mixture, like you said, pick the best, pick the things that work best. It's a, it's a pigeon. It's, you know, yeah. it's, kind of, it's like a like an urban pigeon. So, Jay, you know, writing your book, your Chronicle Book One, what do you think? Is this is this fitting in with that? This is where I get my usually kicked in the balls. <laughs> I went with a, a nice conservative Republican type futuristic storyline of where the governments were failing, the global economy collapses, and the corporations who had been demonized by the government bail out the governments. And in doing so, end up taking control of the world economy again. And now it's to the point where the corporations, there are enough bad apples in the corporations and the governments are trying to get out of their government contracts. But the corporations, if without them, whole cities will fail. And, of course, there's urban sprawl. You know, there's no more Tokyo. It's just a gigantic um, bleed-out city, you know, much like in the classic bubblegum crisis. Um, New York City is the same way. Boston's the same way. The players themselves, they're like normal, basically your normal people with classy jobs. When I run the game, it's it's really in depth, you know, in, in that sense, um, to the point where you know there's a a VR game called New Eden, where people played it so much that production in society was beginning to fail. So they started passing laws saying, look, you, you can't play here, you can't do it wirelessly here, you have to do it from home. Um, because people were driving and they were plugging in while they were at red lights and then completely zoning out and trying to multitask. And I tried to go against the grain only because when I was looking, you know, researching cyberpunk, it's like we talk about, you know, the cybernetic limbs and so on and, and replacements and, and getting what you don't have. And it's like, well, if you could grow it, why would you put, why would you use metal if you can just grow a new part? Right. And it started changing the whole dynamic of the, so it, it was really hard to like, do straight cyberpunk because technology is changing. It's not the way they, they fantasized it and they projected we're moving past cybernetics we're moving into bio biopunk. Yeah. Yeah. I, I got that. And and that's something else I want to touch on too. There's, that's a, uh, another, I, I want to talk about uh, bio versus cyber because uh, you know, the whole cyberpunk genre was, was kind of built basically in the eighties and, and in, and like John said into the nineties, but uh, as time has moved on, uh, as we've progressed, you know, cyberpunk is looking less uh, like it's looking like the future is going to be less like what they predicted in the 80s and 90s. Much like, you know, when you when you watch one of the films from like the 40s, what the future was going to be like. And it's not like that at all. Uh, I think it's already happening to the cyberpunk genre. And we, we can talk about that some as well. Steve Austin would not exist in, in, in the current genre. <laughs> no. No, he would, he would not be the six million dollar man for sure. Six billion dollar man. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, all right. So let's 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 get into this. Let's get into. I want to start with the setting because I think that's we really need to kind of paint the background before we throw all the toys into it. As for the setting, I want to talk from movies, okay? So, and we can talk from books and stuff as well. But I want to take like I want to, I want to use examples of media because I think that's the easiest thing that we can you know we can all talk about. And we're all talking the same language, and our audience can follow along because most of them. 
uh, have seen these movies and read these books. Because I mean, you know, we have a we have a science fiction literate audience audience. So, so I think if we do that, it makes everything real accessible to everybody. I made a list which I've shared with the guys. So I'm just going to kind of go down the list if everybody's okay with that. And then if you guys want to add stuff in, please do. Let's start with our my favorite. This is, to me, this is the quintessential cyberpunk. We've already talked about it, Blade Runner. And I think what Blade Runner brings to the cyberpunk genre, uh, why it's such a good resource is because when Ridley Scott and his team created the the, the urban sprawl, they created the city and, and how it operated, I think it was fantastic. I mean, the futurists that worked on that, uh, I can't remember his name. Sid Mead, I think, was the future. Yep, that Sid Mead. Yep, Douglas Douglas Trumbull. He he's amazing. He he's probably the, one of the best futurists that ever lived. He did a fantastic job. I mean, the the movie is so you just get immersed in it, uh, and I think that's why it, it it holds up to this day. I think another thing that Blade Runner brought to the the mix was, uh, and of course, this is from the novel uh, Electronic Sheep, or what is it? When androids do androids dream of electronic sheep. Uh, they bring in the whole concept of replicants, and you know, basically, replicants are clones that that they use to do work. So they're not just uh, copying people for no reason; they're copying them basically as slaves. And and it questions the you know humanity and and are these really people and do they have rights? And it touches on all that kind of stuff. And I think that's really important because I, I think the cyberpunk genre. I mean, we can already make clones; we've already done it. Uh, I don't know that we can do people yet. No one's well, not that we know of. Anyone's tried. We can, but we choose not to. Right, because we have no real reason to. We've got a perfectly good method for making new humans. But if you were to heavily modify them and use them as a slave labor force, I think Blade Runner did a very good job of that. And I can see uh, in, in your, your scenario where corporations are, are running the show and, and they've, they've taken over everything and they're not answering to government – or they're not answering to the people, I can see them maybe going down that road. I say, or they're operating from extra legal territory where maybe your cloning is illegal, but it's not, but your cloning is not illegal in an orbital habitat. Or on Mars. Or in international waters out in the middle of the Atlantic or Pacific. Or I buy a third world country. And have the law changed, yeah. or in Antarctica? Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. So Jay, do you have uh, do you have clones or replicants of any kind in your uh, in your version? No, I I mean I've got cloning, but not like full blown clones. I have something called masks, which are will be equivalent of like a Terminator, but they're not homicidal maniacs, and they're not programmed to kill. They're just a they're designed to to be more presentable to the human eye, not give people what Doctor Who they refer to as robophobia. <laughs> robophobia. But it, it wouldn't be beyond, like, if, if I'm running the game, let's say I buy your game and I'm, I'm running it, it wouldn't be out of the realm of your genre for me to go, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make replicants. I'm going to put replicants in the game. No, definitely not. There's a thing called a beast over in the game where um, players can be genetically altered to have, like, animalistic features and stuff and um, through, you know, genetic ma- manipulation and Cloning, I mean, it's it's not really that far out there. Matter of fact, um, I ran a, an adults-only game at TotalCon last year with clone goats. Oh, God. <laughs> That's where the picture of the, the goat in Galoshes and Nuclear Trigger come from. Okay. It's totally possible. Yeah. The, the game really leaves a lot out there, which is which is nice. There's another movie. It's an older movie. Uh, it was filmed in 69. I think it was released in 70. It was Soylent Green. It's a real classic. That is a movie... 
that it's kind of cyberpunk, but there's no cybernetics or any of the kind of advanced technology that you would normally see. But what it captures is is that dystopian future. It's basically, in, in cyberpunk terms, where that movie takes place is what I would call the combat zone for the most part. It's where the everyday uh, masses live. Uh, people who couldn't afford to have cybernetics or don't that aren't valued enough to have anything like cybernetics or, or biological upgrades or anything like that. You know, it's the salt of the earth. Uh, and I think Sonic Green paints that picture really well, as does Clockwork Orange. Clockwork Orange, again, no cybernetics, but that dystopian future, that feel, that city. You know, if you wanted your players, let's say they've never seen Clockwork Orange, and you would say, well, you guys are going to head into the combat zone next week when we get together. Watch Clockwork Orange, and that'll give you an idea of what the city looks like. Come on, my droogs, we're going out for a party. <laughs> Fitty well, little brother. Uh, and then I think another one that's really good for that, I mean, just for feel, again, in this in this whole thing, is Brazil is a good one for that. Uh, it's, it's a little campy. It's a little more on the campy side. And, and Akira, I think, paints that picture real well, too. It knock out all the um, the crazy psionics which you can have in your cyberpunk game but i'm just saying just for the 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 feel and the look of a cyberpunk city judge yeah. dread judge dread's good yep judge dread's a good one absolutely and Dr- i think dread is better than judge dread absolutely okay so, you're not which, you're not being clear peter oh dread being the carl urban movie the one that was just released that one's way better than the uh than the stallone one well, yeah, I was referring to the Dread movie and the comic book that it's based on. Yes. Oh, yeah, the comic's really good. I am the law. And, and I could foresee that, you know, that, that whole I am the law type, you know, coming into play. You know, maybe even especially if their corporations were, were getting out of hand, you know, where the government just goes, you know what? We're going to make law officers and we're going to give them the ability to do whatever the hell they need to do. And if that means, you know, some corp gets out of hand... Hey, you were breaking the law. Let's start throwing in some of the fun stuff. So let's talk cybernetics. And we'll get into the biological stuff in just a tiny bit. I think the movies that I've seen that spell this out really, really well. Nemesis is top of my list. Oh, totally. Oh, and, well, and maybe Ghost in the Shell comes in around there too. The two of them are really right up the top of my list. If you want to see... The media using like hardcore going totally cybernetic. Robocop is pretty good. Johnny Mnemonic was pretty good. Now, what do you guys think? Any other ones you can think of that, that really spell out like showing cybernetics being used? Appleseed. Appleseed, bro? Briorius is a full conversion Borg. Version of future, there is partial Borgs, full conversion Borgs. There are bioroids, which are basically replicants and full humans and existentialism plays big in that whole storyline. Yeah. I, I can't believe I left that off the list, but yeah, you're right. Yeah. And also technically Appleseed is a sequel to ghost in the shell. Yeah. They're in the same universe. Now, if you want to talk about a, a movie about cybernetics and, you know, people putting machines in their bodies, Tetsu, the iron man, that's just a little too far, John. It is in some people's list though. Cyberpunk. You're right. I saw I, I saw that on the list, and I and I I didn't put it on our list because I thought it might be a little too vague. But maybe I mean maybe because you know it, it, I've heard that be many times. Yeah, it's not a film for kids. Yeah, no. <laughs> I think a better choice would be A N Flux. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yeah. That's right. That's good. Oh yeah, yeah. Hey Trav, why don't you chime in on something? We haven't heard you in a while. Okay. Uh, 
what in particular would you like me to... Why don't you take the next one? So the next one is about a genetic and biological repercussions. So like, you know, the movie Gattaca and, and say the movie Equilibrium. And, you know, 1984 kind of in some ways. So what about, uh, you know, the, the feel on that, the the advancements in science that uh, put people under the under the watchful eye of the government type of thing or corporations? How all of these alterations would affect legality, do you mean? Yeah, sure. That That's good. Yeah. When I came back in, they were mentioning cloning and Paul mentioned existentialism. Okay, well, if I were to clone myself and let's say for the sake of the argument, we had the concept of brain taping where my my psyche could be downloaded into the clone. Well, now there's two of me. Is that clone, you know, is it a person? How would it be regarded? Would it be regarded as a twin brother or as a son? Laws have to be made in order to account for all this. The sixth day. Sixth day. Which one was that? Was that uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Also, with the genetic alterations, I think it was Jay that mentioned about splicing animal DNA. Speciation. As soon as you start refining genetics where everybody gets something different, you have infinite speciation. You have these people who are race of one. You might have a guy with fox and bat DNA, and you might have another guy with um, cat DNA. They're technically no longer baseline human. Everybody is becoming their own race. You have to make laws to account for that. Are these yeah. people human? Then if so, you know, are they second-class citizens or baseline humans now second-class citizens because everybody's augmented? These are all things that have to be taken into account when you start dealing with genetics. You have to deal with, okay, the concept of souls. Does a clone have a soul? And it's a sticky wicket for a campaign because you want to have that there, but you also don't want to get into these discussions at the gaming table where it bogs things down. Right. I agree, Trev. I don't think they should, you should have discussions about them at the gaming table, but you should certainly take it into consideration when you're designing your character. Because once you create a situation where the definition of human is not shared by even a majority of the people, then you, you throw yourself into some very scary waters about how you feel about yourself, how you feel about anybody else you run into, your concepts, as I said before, of mercy, of justice. You know, they're, they're all you know, up in the air, and it, it's up to the player to decide what is the right and what is wrong perhaps only from his own viewpoint. Part of the biological process would be uh, implants, biological implants. So you, you want to be able to see at night. You can get uh, eyes made that actually have more, uh, is it rods or cones? More rods. Rods, yes. Yeah, more rods in it so you can see at night much better than anyone else. Or even have rods that can see in the infrared. Heck, John, you wouldn't even need to do that. You could just have the genes, you know, have the, have the genes turned on for those with a virus. Uh, but we don't have genes for that. No, besides, I want I want to switch back, so I just keep my my old eyes on ice until I, re, I until, I get, until I need to take them take them back. I'm thinking Minority Report, that it technically is a little bit cyberpunkish, but they did was more biological than uh, cybernetic. Of course, they had the precognition going on there. I think Minority Report was totally cyberpunk. What we find biologically is is that in order for structures like organs and such to develop. They can't just be made in place. They require other tissues, a matrix for them to develop into. 
So unless we're talking really, really far in the future, where we're literally constructing parts of bodies from the cell up through through some kind of nanotechnology, we're talking about making stuff and then implanting it in bodies. Oh, I know, I know. But some things we do have the genes for, they're just not activated. Like, like for example, if you step back, you know, like there's a good chunk of our DNA that, that we share with the fly, and there's some of those genes that we might be able to turn on. I, I, it's not everything. You're right. And for entire organs and stuff, we, we, yeah, you're right. We'd have to implant them. You could probably make those things using uh, – if there's a new, new system they have out now for dissolving um, – you, you dissolve all the muscle tissue and stuff away from an organ, and you're left with the protein lattice of it, which is, is creature – neutral. It doesn't house information about you in particular, so your immune system ignores it. Scaffolding. You put your stem cells on it, and that scaffolding tells your stem cells what to build. So you could put other organs in your body that are basically made out of you. And I'm talking this would be more advanced, of course, but then your body wouldn't reject it or anything. It'd be it'd be you, and it would it would treat it as you. Hey, Peter? Yes. I say that's not far away. That's already in um, our good friends DARPA, yes, I know, has for the last couple of years been using a lattice made from pig bladders. I know. I was talking like what John was saying with like like eyes that are genetically enhanced and modified. There'd be more to it than just growing. If you grew like I don't know, like eagle eyes or whatever, they wouldn't be the right size. I'm I'm saying, yeah. But I, I disagree with what you, you guys said earlier about, you know, why make it when you can grow it? Well, there's a lot of good reasons to make organs and make these kinds of implants. Uh, first of all, consistency. Secondly, because they'll always be correct. They'll be easily repairable. And most importantly, you probably can get a level of improvement much greater than what you can do by growing them biologically. Take your idea of the eyes, okay? Well, all mm-hmm. those cones and rods, they're a certain size, but you can, using nanotubes and things like that, you could probably make eyes that have 10, 20, 100 times the resolution of a normal eye because, you know, those kinds of structures are so much smaller than cells. Oh, and don't forget, you, uh, we only have like three kinds of cones. We have red, blue, and green. Is it? So... Some species of birds have four sets of color cones. So I want more color in my life. Yeah. I want those extra cones, that extra cone in my retina, so I can actually see more colors. Right, right. Which makes everything else look wrong, by the way. So, Jay, this sounds right up the alley of what you're doing with your game. Which part? Oh, well, just all the biological stuff. I mean, this, this sounds like exactly what you were talking about, going more biological, less cyber. We touch base on everything, even the reproductive organs. Whoa. You know, it, it, what do you do there, Jay? <laughs> Awkward. Yeah. I've skeeved now. <laughs> I bear back. I got to wash my hands. <laughs> I mean, if you've ever seen the, the old APD, um, was it 80 police series, the, like the three part of they had one of the characters had gone completely, you know, psychotic mm. because basically all her female reproductive organs replaced with cybernetics. So she wouldn't have, you know, she wouldn't menstruate and whatever. And she wanted to be more competitive in a male dominated business world. So when I was looking at other things you could grow, it's like, it kept sitting there. It's like, this would actually be really good because people would love to have reproductive organs that they could control and still feel like they're human without feeling like they've gutted themselves in the process. 
know, and, and that's and that's where the metal versus versus flesh comes. It's like you can get way more technology, but are you looking for for that Cyberman upgrade, or are you looking for something to make you feel like human, like everybody else? You know, some type of normality, and so that's why you know I threw stuff in there that was like that because you know, it seemed like the human thing to do. I mean, I really wanted players to feel like the everyday you know, angst of a normal person while playing this game. One of the lures, though, of cybernetics, however, is that there's limits to bone and flesh. And with cybernetic, Motoko Kusanagi, she's a full-body cyborg. She can bench Prince a Volkswagen with no problem. Yeah, yeah well, <laughs> see, that's the thing about cybernetics. A lot of people, like in role-playing games, will sit there and go, oh, yeah, I want to be able to lift a ton. Mm-hmm. Okay, you got cybernetic arms. You need to reinforce the legs, the pelvis, the spine, or otherwise you're going to pick up something and just basically pulp yourself. Or at the most, you might be able to like crush something in your hand. But without reinforcing the entire skeleton, yeah, you try to lift that car, and yeah, you're you're just going to end up being blood soup. Tear your own arms off. To act like Superman, you have to have Superman's body. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which is what they got right in the in the original. Six million dollar man movie. They actually had a consultant who told him, "No, he can't pick that up. His armor just come right off." However, if he braces himself in the right in the right way, he can rip rip a uh, tank hatch off a tank. But he, you know, he can't pull it off. He's got to lever his arm down and then then basically do a curl to get it off to, to rip it off. And they made sure they made sure he did everything. Physically, the first movie was technically correct. It was actually hard science fiction. They made sure he anything he did was possible, you know, without having a, a full cybernetic back. We'll get a little more into cybernetics when we get into the tech discussion. I mean, I think we've covered it pretty good, so maybe we'll just gloss over it again. Let, let's move on to um, the colonies off world. So let's start with Jay. Uh, Jay. Do you have any colonies off world? Do you have you know, anything on Mars or the moon or space station or any of that kind of stuff? Chinese recently announced they're going to mine on the moon and they had mentioned it before a few years ago. And so there is a Chinese mining colony on the moon. Okay. Like I said, I kept everything with projecting like what countries are doing and saying, and the Chinese, they get the money and they've got the, the technology to do it. And they say they're going to plenty of Guinea pigs. <laughs> no. And actually the, the people that work on the moon, uh, most of them are genetically altered, so they can work longer hours. You know, they're under great contracts and and so on. I mean, I really dug into the business aspect of like how do you pay people to go to the moon. So a, a lot of it is you know people who their families are are being taken care of very well by the corporation in exchange that they give up their bodies and pretty much almost their life for the mining colony. You wouldn't have to pay me. Well, I was going to say there's pretty much no coming back. Yeah, it's a one way trip. Yeah, Jay, because in order to be, what's the term, augmented in order to be able to survive in the light gravity, yeah, okay, we're going to have to augment you in order to work on the moon. Okay, you're going to be working off that on the colony as well. Basically, we pay for the procedure, and you not only are working for us, you have to work to pay off everything that we do, the investment that we put into you for you to be able to work for us anyways. Yeah, and a lot of the game does that, especially where... Like all, all the, the the hero types for the game, they all come with insurance policies. So <laughs> um, if you take the, one of the the tiers for for a um, working for the corporation, they'll pay for your repairs, but you're under contract. So I mean, there there's a lot of catch twenty ones to everything. And the 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 moon bit was you know 
I needed to get into space because the next book is I need to get away from cyberpunk and into space. So the moon, it's there. The Chinese are talking about it. So wasn't it recently announced? Someone came along and said, "Oh, we found a thing that basically exercises your muscles. Give you a shot, and you, you basically your your body will self exercise thinks it's being exercised and keep the muscle mass going." Yeah, it's steroids. A- not steroids. N- not steroids. No, it would it would be a um, some kind of signaling system to tell your body to rebuild the muscle. Well, yeah, it's like in the Matrix when they were putting all the little electrodes in them, and it was shocking the muscles because the muscles had atrophied while Neo was in the tube. So yeah, he had to rebuild the muscles and you know reactivate what's the term, the twitch fibers. Yeah, it's called myostatin. Is the stuff it, it convinces the muscles that they'd be an exercise and therefore they start to in building. It's not like steroids; it's different, but they still you know so far they're not. Gonna, it's years away from them testing on humans. Yeah, but this is a game. Yeah, we just assume that they figured it out. It's that simple because it's it's really not that far off. Because if you think about it, it always comes back to you know when people say, "Well, we can't grow," you know, nerves won't regrow, and this won't do this, and we can't regrow limbs. It's like, yeah, but the question always comes back to, "But we did it once before," you know, when we were born. So there is a mechanism for it to be done. There is a mechanism in the body that it it knows how to do that. It's just there's something that has turned that off. And of course you want it turned off because you don't want cancer because cells growing out of control, it's exactly what that is. However, if you could control that with some sort of treatment or you know medicine or heck, use nanotechnology or whatever your excuse is, whatever your hand wave is, there's no reason why you couldn't have something where they would say, all right, you take this shot and in a week you can land back on earth because your muscles, we're going to tell your muscles to start growing again. I've actually told my dentist that if they ever look for um, people who want to test out the new tooth bud technology that Washington University developed, basically growing teeth in place. I'm in first in line. I want to be first in line for that. I've had uh, two implants and I have five crowns. I would rather actually be able to have good normal teeth instead of those things. And just yank it out, put some buds in. Let's go. Yeah, of course you have to extract it. That's the thing. You know, when whenever you want something new, you, so, something's got to come out, or you got to do some restructuring. Like if you want wings, so you can fly in low gravity. You got to restructure your back and your muscles and your shoulders just to, make, to support that. Your bone structure has to be made lighter. Because just our our bodies are not made for that. Mm-hmm. Let's see, maybe change the, and of course, again, a hand wave, change the chemistry of the biochemistry of your bones to some type of light carbon fiber. And then you still got to change the musculature plus where the shoulder blades are. Put that. That's a massive overhaul if you want wings. You can't just say, oh, I'm going to inject some uh, avian DNA and boom, I've got them. No, there's a lot of work that would go into putting wings on a person. The only flying hexapods we know of are insects. and the, But those aren't wings. Those actually are shell. They're actually carapace that's converted into wings. Let's talk about a couple of the other colonies, possibilities, though. You have sea. We, talk, we touched on the sea colonies. So, I mean, that's not off the earth, but it's, it's off conventional. Oh, aquologies. Yeah, aquologies. And, and undersea, I mean, if we're talking about all these genetic modifications and cybernetics and stuff, you could literally have undersea cities where there's no dome or anything that people live underwater. Well, you have gills. Yes. Not just gills. You also have to adapt for the pressure of being underwater. 
you have to somehow make muscle and bone denser. You'd be able to survive in that crushing pressure, depending no. on how your ecology is. No, no, Trav, there is no pressure when everything's equalized. Yeah. If your body's full of water. Well, your yeah. body's already full of water, but if your lungs are full of water, then there's no problem. Right, because the, the big problem with the pressure is, is that, and, and I don't know how far down this extends, but uh, the reason why fish can handle it is because... They're breathing water. They don't have like a bunch of oxygen that can collapse and, and such. A big part of it is, is you get down there and you can't breathe because your lungs are being crushed. Blood loses its ability to make the oxygen solvable or something to that effect. Solu, that's it. Yeah. Right. But the reason it's toxic is because in order to compensate for the pressure, you increase the amount of pressure of the of the air, the uh, breathing mixture. And what happens is, is that that air, those air molecules get more and more condensed to the point mm -hmm. where it becomes a toxic mixture to your body. So that's one reason why they replace it with things like helium, because helium is non-toxic to your body. Uh, just taking a medical class in one of the things was hyperoxidation where uh, your helpful relatives come in your medical room and turn your oxygen up because more's got to be better. Oh. And what happens is when you get too much oxygen, the body actually stops breathing because it doesn't need it. Yeah. Wow, nice. Then you look at, whale, at sperm whales that died down how far? A thousand feet or more? Yeah, but, but they're made, they, they have special structures and... Yeah, well, no, I've seen pictures of dolphins who've dived down deep, and, they, and you can see where their lungs have collapsed. They've evolved to let their lungs collapse. We haven't. Our diaphragm doesn't work like that. <laughs> no, not so much. To keep the amount of oxygen the human body needs, you would need gills going down your neck. You just need to push water through them faster. Yeah. But the other structure is our digestive system. That have, would have to change to be fluid-filled all the time. And a lot of our internal organs are hollow or they work by your heart rate pumping through. And so if you increase pressure and you compress the, ch the chest cavity, you're cutting off how your internal organs work. So suffice it to say that if you have one of these underwater arcologies and it's not you know, an ecology, it's not air-filled – uh, the people living there, people who live there, they don't come out on the shore. You're not going to have amphibious people. No, you're not going to have that. So you can have it in your game, and it'd be kind of neat if you want to do that. It, you know, you you would show up as characters in your your suits, your your scuba suits and such, and maybe they'd have chambers for people when they're staying there. Maybe maybe they'd have like a couple hotels down there where you know visitors could stay, especially for doing business and stuff. Or you, you dome the city like you know like in most science fiction. Or is what I like to do uh, when I one of the um, the the cities I created for a cyberpunk game we were playing. I put it in a cave, so it was an underwater cave, and they sealed off the mouth of the cave and pumped out all the water. So you didn't have to build like a big dome and stuff. You only had to seal off a, a, a much smaller area, and they had like a big city down in the cave. So that was pretty neat neat way of doing it. I think the trick is, are you going to be under pressure, or are you going to build a pressure-resistant city? Yeah, yeah, there's all, there's all that. Depends on, depends on how deep it goes. Yeah, I mean, basically, if you have a pressure-resistant city, you, you don't have to worry about spending a week in, in decompression, right. you know, when you leave. But if it's, you know, if it's pressurized, yeah, yeah. you're going to spend a week or so in, 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 decom in decompression, get yourself back up to the surface again. So we've, we've talked about a, a orbiting city. So just real quick, you know, you're going to have colonies. And we, oh, we talked about colonies on the moon. But, you know, 
Cyberpunk could extend out to Mars. And I guess if you're going high fantasy, much the way like Bruce likes to talk about with his laser guns and blasters, uh, you could you could go all the way out to like Jupiter and and Saturn and have maybe have a base. Go where the money is. The asteroid belt. Asteroid belt. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, sure. Most of those asteroids are no bigger than a baseball, but okay. One of those made out of platinum and your life is made. True. So one of the things that I want to touch on about this, and this is this is kind of important uh, in that if you're going to have these kind of colonies and stuff, and this is something that I would demand in my game, uh, if you have not figured out how to do anti-gravity yet, I would be very likely to throw a space elevator into into my mix. Oh, a skyhook, yes, yes. Oh, no, uh, skystalker. Beanstalk. Well, whatever you want to call it. Beanstalk, Beanstalk. Yes. Beanstalk, thank you. I, I like space elevator. You can call it beanstalk if you like. But I definitely would have one of those in mind just because, A, it's a great story. It's great for plot points and stuff. There's all kinds of adventures and stuff you can do with that. Um, Robinson wrote the Mars series, Lou Mars. Yeah. Right. Where the first colonists go to Mars and they get things started. And the last book is, you know, uh, where Mars has got a blue sky. But there's a, a beanstalk features really strongly in the story. And they have an accident where the beanstalk comes down. It's a nanocarbon fiber cable that attaches the orbiting asteroid Phobos to the surface of Mars. The cable comes loose. And the cable is absolutely so long that it wraps around the planet twice. One of the cool things about the beanstalk is that any method of going up and down the beanstalk is probably a lot slower than you'd get with a rocket. Oh, yeah. literally takes days, if not weeks, to go up to orbit, going up and going down the beanstalk. So that provides all kinds of opportunities for you to stop along the way at various ports of call, so to speak, on the beanstalk, where you can have bolt holes of strange people with strange problems, people who are adapted to space, bumping up against what you're doing. Uh, I'm just saying, there's a lot of stuff that you can uh, have on that beanstalk is, uh, because it's going to be pretty darn big. It's not going to be some skinny little thing. Bruce, you can also have uh, an Orient Express type adventure. You know, you're on this big long train going up the thing, depending on how you design it for your game. Some things I've seen, they some people think it's going to be just multiple cars going up, like separate cars. But I could see it being like a train going up and you could have like a murder mystery going on where you're trapped on this train. You can't get off of it. Right. Dirty Pair, Project Eden, actually had a space elevator. And it basically was a big building-sized elevator that went up. So, Jade, do you have a space elevator in your uh, in your setting? Yeah, I, I sort of do. <laughs> you do? Cool. No, that's good. You should. No, that makes sense. No, it, it was designed to, to power like a solar panel or whatever. No, that's perfect. To collect power, so... And I thought about that, too, uh, for space elevators. I thought, you know, one of the things you could do, you've got this big thing floating in space that's always there, and it needs a lot of power to run. Why not have big, giant solar panels coming off this thing, and it basically is energy neutral? I was going to say, maybe it's even a power, one of the world's power plants. Maybe it's one of the, the world's big solar power plants. All the materials they're talking about using for the tether, for the cable that runs between the, the elevator, between space and Earth... Every material that they've proposed for that is going to be uh, fairly conductive. And if you're talking about like a carbon nanotube, that's actually super conductive. So it actually makes for a fantastic conduit for power. 
you think about how what the farthest distance there is between a power generator and the endpoint of somebody's house. We're talking vast vast differences in scale here getting out to let's say to you know, to the moon or even 100 miles up. So there's probably going to be multiple points of power generation in order to move things up and down this beanstalk. One of the key concepts of the space elevator is what you do is whenever you send something up, you send something down. It's on the same tether, so you're not using quite as much energy as you would think. If you can equal out the loads, which I just don't see being practical. That's how a building elevator works, though. Yeah. If you've ever been in any high-rise, you've, there's a counterweight going the other direction. There's this new graphene metal laminate that potentially has the potential strength for a, 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 at least a ribbon cable. It's not going to be a cable cable. It's going to be more like a ribbon. Yeah. Yes. It's the one that's dropping now. Yeah. And it's basically it conducts electricity. So, yeah, you can actually, as they go up, you have magnets that, you know, ride the current up. But as it comes down, it breaks. And as it breaks, it generates current. And that current can be, be used to help run the one going up again. Or it can be stored and then then used again later on. So there there's various ways of of, of doing it. Yeah, having a big solar panel up on top doesn't hurt. It's gonna be out at like ninety one thousand kilometers, uh, so it's not gonna be in any shade very much. You know. This is Bruce Sheffer saying there are a million million worlds out there, so go explore them. This is John Ryer saying keep your powder dry and keep those cards and letters coming in. This is Blix. Don't hate the game, hate the players. And this is Paul. When you remove the pin, Mr. Grenade is no longer your friend. And this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming. It's for having fun. Yo, brothers. This was the Tri-Tech Games Podcast. You know the drill. It's protected under the Creative Commons License 3.0. No commercial reproduction, no derivatives, and sucker, you best attribute this to the folks at TriTech Games. And if you don't, we'll be after your sorry butts, cause we're some bad mothers. Hi, this is Trav of the Travcast, Hour 3 of Blind Wolf's Rubber Room Association on DementiaRadio.org, Tuesdays, 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern.